We are in Psalm chapter 3. This is a psalm of David. And the song that we just sang just a moment ago, a song of, of crying out to the Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you. Every hour, I need you. And that's true. But sometimes, you know this, there are particular hours. There are particular moments, there are particular seasons in your life in which the the reality, the ongoing hourly reality of our cry, Lord, I need you, becomes a particular cry for that moment, that hour. That's where we find ourselves in Psalm 3. This is the first psalm with a superscription. All right, I just used my first big word for the day. So kids, you can explain that to your parents what that means. I'll give you just a minute. Um, Superscription. If you look at the, at the text here, you see verse 1 starts with, O Lord, how many are my foes, right? But there's actually Scripture right above it. Not that little part that says, Save me, O my God, if you're following along in the ESV. That's a little title that's put in by the translators. It's helpful, but not the inspired word. But we do have that little portion that says, A Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom his son. That's actually in the text for us. It's a, a superscription. It goes, it's written down, script, right there before the remainder of the psalm. It tells us that it's a psalm of David or a mizmor. That means a song that's accompanied by string instruments. Now our songs this morning were accompanied by stringed instruments. That's kind of fun. Uh, well, this psalm also written by David, accompanied by stringed instruments. It is one of 13 Psalms of David. David wrote about 73 of the Psalms that we know of, and it's one of 13 of those Psalms that give us the historical setting in which, in which David was living and what he was experiencing at the moment when he wrote this particular Psalm. So it's one of 13 that we know what was going on when it was written. And this is why I say this Psalm was written for a particular hour of need. What is the particular hour of need? When he fled from Absalom. So if you're fleeing from someone, this is an hour of need. But what if I told you he was fleeing from his son, Absalom, his son. And one of the things about David is for all of the preparation that he made for his son Solomon for the building of the temple, that the Lord would have Solomon build. David made great preparations. But one of the best preparations that David made was the writing of these psalms. Uh, The greatest preparation he made for God's people in worship is the writing of these psalms. And in this moment, he's writing this psalm in a season of great distress. Now, I would encourage you, if it's, you're not just looking there at maybe some notes that are in a study Bible, if you have that, but if not, I would encourage you to write in the margin of your Bible, 2 Samuel 13 through 19. 2 Samuel 13 through 19. It is a whole lengthy episode that recounts the origins of the dispute of David's household, a dispute that was taking place among his sons, an enmity that had grown up between the sons of David. And for all of David's zeal for God's house, David seems to struggle in a concern and a care for his 
own house. He loved his sons, but you'll, you'll see when you read that episode, there were real issues that it appears that David failed to address. And it comes back around on David, part of the reality that the Lord says that the sword won't, uh, won't depart from his house is that that sword would take place right there in his house. All, comes, all of this comes to a climax when Absalom, David's son, conspires to be anointed as king in opposition to his living father, David, the king. You can see this is a pretty big issue. So this psalm has a very significant historical moment that it's written in. David gets words of the uprising just south taking place, the anointing of Absalom just south of Jerusalem. And David flees his palace and leaves the city of Jerusalem. He goes east to the Mount of Olives, and then he goes on across the Jordan and takes refuge in the northeast of Israel. There's a powerful scene. And if you look at 2 Samuel 15, there's a powerful scene in which David, barefoot and weeping, crosses over the Kidron Valley and he climbs the Mount of Olives, which overlook the palace and the city of Jerusalem. And you can see him barefoot, weeping, it says, with, with a cloth over his head as he ascends that mountain, looking back and he can see his palace walls behind him and knows that he's abandoning his city. It's in that sort of context that Psalm 3 sits. As he leaves the city and he makes his way to to flee across the Jordan, all of David's old enemies come out. I mean, just because you're established with great power doesn't mean you don't have enemies in the land. They come out and they begin to oppose David and they begin to abuse David. Here's 2 Samuel 16, 7 through 8. This is just one of them. Shemai said as he cursed, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man, screaming at David as he's making his way away from the city, being chased by his son Absalom. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned, and the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. What a violent accusation. What a horrible situation in this family. Shemai is essentially shouting that this coup, this rebellion of his own son Absalom is actually God's justice and therefore there will be no salvation from God. Are you starting to see the connection to the psalm? Isn't that the accusation right there in the psalm? Many are saying, of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God because this is actually God's judgment on him. What I found amazing is how David's confidence throughout the whole ordeal yet remains in the Lord. Just a a few verses later there in 2 Samuel, he says in, in 16, 12, it may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. What does he say? Does he turn around and argue with a fool who's cursing him? He doesn't argue with him. He doesn't plead his defense. He goes before the Lord and he says, it may be, Lord, that you would bless rather than curse. That runs thick and throughout our psalm this morning, said right in the middle of a mournful retreat from a city. 
It takes four more chapters to tell the rest of the story, but ultimately, just spoiler alert, all right, just in case you were planning to read this later this week, all right, it's still good, still worth reading, right? The rebellion gets put down, okay? The rebellion is put down. David's army overcomes the army of Absalom. There's an incredible few moments of intrigue, and Absalom is killed by Joab, one of David's commanders. Victory, right? Rebellion destroyed the, 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 the coup leader is killed, victory. Yet listen to David's response upon hearing that his son is dead. 2 Samuel 18, 33, and the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, oh, Absalom, my son my son. I find that to be one of the most heart-wrenching verses in all of the scriptures. He's falling over himself in his grief as the words tumble out, my son, my son, my son. You can see how serious of a historical reality David writes this psalm, and yet hear this about the psalms. They, they do have a context. Even the psalms where we're not told what the context is they were still written in a moment with a pen. Yes, under the the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but the beauty of God's work in the word is he uses these human instruments to give us perfect word. Well, what is the reality is that the songs are also songs of the Lord, specifically of the Lord Jesus. Jesus, who is the anointed king who reigns forever according to the promise given to David. David's son of David, Jesus. He is the fulfillment of the covenant made to David. And Jesus knows every bit of the suffering that is found in this psalm and so many of the others. So as we give attention here, we're not just giving attention to King David's historical context. We're giving attention to the historical context of our own Lord's suffering, of our King Jesus's salvation. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your inspiration. I thank you that you don't just give us documents. You don't just give us, quote, religious texts. You give us songs to be accompanied by stringed instruments, and you give us context for them. Lord, I thank you for this song. I pray that you would teach us how to learn to sing it with faith. Lord, that would begin today if our ears would receive it with faith. So, Lord, I pray that your spirit would work in our hearts, in our minds, in our ears, that we would receive your word today. Thank you, Lord. We trust you for this in Jesus, the great king's name. Amen. This psalm, you could break it down a few different ways. I've chosen to go with breaking it down into three Parts, but we're just going to walk through it together. And the first thing that we see is that many foes accuse David. Many foes accuse. The psalm, first words, what are they? Oh. Now let's, let's remember, it's just one letter, but it's not just a Passover word. It's not something you just say, oh, yeah, so let's get to the real meat of the psalm. We're already at the real meat of the psalm. This is a cry. Oh, Lord, not dear Lord, not heavenly Father. Oh, Lord, is the cry. 
It's so important. David's cry is a guttural, real cry of the, in desperation and need, and it's instructive that he cries to the Lord. It's not an expletive. He didn't just curse. He's directing his guttural cry to the Lord. Have you ever cried out? Have you ever cried out, oh, we're already instructed. You see, we understand the word, oh, but do we understand, oh, Lord? We could be instructed by this already. Now he continues, oh, Lord, how many are my foes? And now we know why he said, oh, at the beginning and why he directs that cry to the Lord. He has many foes. Remember, these foes are coming out of the woodwork, old accusers, adversaries, cursing him, joining with the conspiracy of his son, Absalom. I said that this is a psalm of David, and it is a psalm that the Holy Spirit has given to David, but he's also given it to the people by giving it to us in his word, by seeing it collected into these psalms. And it is also a psalm of Jesus in whom we see the fullness of this psalm. So I'm going to stop a number of times along the way and look at the context of the life of Jesus, who fulfills so much of this. How many were the foes of our Lord? Oh, Father, how many are my foes? Friends, his foes were as many as there are people who have ever populated the earth. All rebels against his glory. All those who have rejected his way, all of the sin that he bears on the cross. How many of the disciples turned their backs on him? How many of the governing authorities failed to give to Jesus justice? This psalm is when David fled Absalom, his son, but it's also when Jesus faced down his enemies in a cosmic rebellion. I want us to make sure that we have both of the contexts. Now, what does he say? Oh, Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. And what are they saying? They're saying of my soul, hey, David's soul, there's no salvation for your soul. There's no hope. There's no salvation for you in God. We know that you sing those songs that you do, crying out to the Lord, but there's no salvation for you there. It's a powerful statement of faith that David's greatest complaint is that the, the people would say that there's no salvation for him in God. He has so many things to complain about. He has so many fears. Absalom's coming at him. All of his enemies are coming out of the woodwork. But his complaint, his, his word to cry to the Lord, is they're saying, you won't save me. They're saying that, that I will be crushed under this and there is no hope in my God. One can fit and rage and curse and accuse in many, many ways, and we do. But for David, the one thing that would shake him to his core and cause him to cry, oh Lord, is the idea that there is no hope in God. And so he turns to his God. He says, they're saying there's no hope in you. There's no salvation in you. You know, they mocked Jesus as well. They almost said these sort of words. In Matthew 27, 43, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. As he hangs on the cross. If, if he desires him for, he said, I am the son of God. Let God save him now. Jesus' many foes mocked him and they cursed him. 
Does Jesus yet have faith in God as he hangs on the cross? Does he have news of salvation? Or is he lost there? Is he cursed on a tree? Many said the cross, that is the end of Jesus. Now, what's the next word? Jana, thank you. You didn't skip it. (laughs) Selah. Selah. Now, we're not sure exactly what that word means, but it shows up over and over again, and it really seems to be either some sort of musical term that says, like, maybe play the stringed instruments for a little bit, maybe sit and think on this for a moment, and I would suggest that we ought to for a moment. Selah. Many foes mocking and cursing. How much easier would it be? You know this. How much easier would it be if you would just be left alone? If all of those who say things about you and about the things that you believe and the ways that you are and the people you associate, if people would just leave you alone, if you didn't cling to the promises of the Lord or associate with his people, no one could jeer at your faith. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be peaceful? Wouldn't that be restful? How much easier would it be to just go along with the flows of all the people that surround? How much easier would it be if we could just join in the conspiracy or maybe just find a hole to hide in? I can't tell you how many times, honestly, that I know something that is true and yet standing on it, proclaiming it, gathering with others, who identify with the truth of the word, is costly. And my word to God is, God, could you please show me how what I'm believing here isn't true? So I would love to be relieved of the truth, because the truth is hurting here. Could you relieve me to just go off with the conspiracy? And the Lord doesn't do that. But our hearts long for the relief of many enemies. But what's David say? I'm just going to jump ahead to verse 6. He says, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. David only fears the Lord. He has one fear in this psalm, that the Lord would not save. Then he's done for. You can have many, many foes, but if the Lord saves, it's going to be okay. But if the Lord doesn't save, that's his hope. That's his concern. It's the Lord who blesses and the Lord who curses, the Lord who raises up and the Lord who casts down, the Lord who anoints and the Lord who overthrows. So I would ask you two questions before moving on. Where do you turn when you face suffering? What, what do you cry? I know you cry, oh, we all do. We all exclaim when we face a trial. From the youngest among us to the oldest among us, we all know the word O, oh, but do we know the word O oh, Lord? Do you know to cry out to your God? The Psalms give you words, and they're the first two words. Sing them. And if you can't get past them, just sing them on repeat for a little while. Learn the cry, O oh, Lord. I think the second thing for us to ask is what bothers us? What troubles you? What fear do you have? What, what if it was taken away? What if it was not true would bother you to the core of your soul? What would it take for you to say the bottom has, fear, has, the, the, the bottom has dropped out on my life? Are you afraid because the nations and the peoples rage? 
Are you afraid because of what people say about you, believe about you, what takes place in your workplace and in your education place? Are you afraid because fallen sinners deny the way of their maker? But for David, he has one fear. If there is no salvation in God. And so he addresses his fear to God. And then he turns his hope. Because if there is salvation in God, he is safe. He continues in faith. We know this because his cry remains, O Lord. And what do we see? We see the many enemies around. And second, we move on to verse 3. We see that the Lord sustains. The Lord sustains. And he he does it right away there in verse 3. But you, O Lord, O Lord, are a shield about me. Not like a shield in front of me, so I have to watch my back, but the Lord's got me as long as I walk in that direction sort of thing. No, he's a shield about me, encircles me. My glory and the lifter of my head. David can't protect himself. He knows it. And that's why his confession is the Lord is a shield about me. He had to flee his own palace and the the fortress city that he had built, David's city, Jerusalem. And he's running away from his fortress. But he doesn't lose his shield because the Lord is a shield about him. What have you lost? What trial have you faced? What great difficulty have you been in when you say, I've lost everything. I'm no longer safe. Do you in that moment cry, O Lord, you, you alone are my hope. If in you is my salvation, I am saved. You are a shield about me. He he says, you are my glory. As he climbs the Mount of Olives, weeping, shame with curses all around him, the Lord is his glory. And you're the lifter of my head. How low must his head have been, fleeing his own house from his own son? David has one consolation, one hope, one glory. It's that the Lord would lift up his head, that the enemies and accusers are wrong. There is salvation in God. And that lifts him. And that reality is a shield about him. He continues, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. This is just a side note. It's not the main point at all, the text. But it does say, I cried aloud to the Lord. Some of you have trouble, and you're hiding it. I mean, it's church, you know? You walk in, people say, how are you doing? Well, doing good, doing good. How about you? Good week, good week. Work, yeah, Yeah, praise Jesus, right? If you have a trouble, church, we are walking in faith in Christ and so actually are a church at all if we are those who cry aloud to the Lord. Friends, this isn't just a place where you're safe to do that. It's we're only walking as the church that God has actually made us if we are doing that. If you have a trouble, It's okay to say, I'm doing well, doing all right, doing all right. Maybe we can connect later. That's cool. That's okay. That's just human interaction, you know. But it's also okay to say, can we connect later? Have a cry that needs to be made aloud. Will you, with me, cry aloud to the Lord? We see David's orientation. 
he cries to the Lord again, O Lord, O Lord. The Lord answers. David was kicked out of his palace. He was removed from his place, but the Lord has not moved. He is not shaken. What does it say? I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. David is fleeing Jerusalem, and the Lord hasn't moved. (laughs) Come on in, Absalom, do whatever. I am the Lord God, and I have called David my king. There is salvation for David. Well, let's consider again. What's the next word? Selah. Remember Jesus. He cried out as well to the Lord. You might remember in his moment of greatest trial, there on the cross, he cried, my God, my God, O Lord, O Lord, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, in this way, Jesus' experience on that cross is a different one than the experience of David in this psalm. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the Lord God. He is God-made flesh. But in his redemptive ministry, he takes the role of the suffering servant. He's abused, and he's removed from his place, and he's actually cursed on the cross and brought low. But unlike David, with all the accusers around, Jesus is also forsaken. We're going to come back to that in just a moment, but this is such a powerful reality that Jesus, about Jesus, how Jesus fulfills this psalm. He does still fulfill this psalm, but he plays another role. Where in the psalm, though the king is opposed and the many enemies gather around, the king is also rescued, and accordingly, he is appointed salvation of the Lord, and, and he receives all of the covenant promise. But Jesus is that anointed one, that Messiah, who suffers unto death, actually crushed, the curse, not withheld, but laid upon him in full. Because Jesus is not only the faithful one who cries out to the Lord, he was faithful. Jesus was filled with faith. My God, my God. Addressing his complaint to the Lord, just like David here. But he is also the sacrificial redeemer himself. He is the means of justice for which David could receive salvation. He's the one who accomplishes the salvation. He becomes the very means by which when David cries out, Lord, save me, even though David's a sinner. I mean, there's one thing we can know for sure about David. He himself was a rebel against the way of the Lord many times in his life, and yet the Lord saves him. Where's the justice, O God? Well, I will lay that on a future king, on a cross, who will cry out, and he will receive your curse so that you will be saved. We'll come back in just a moment, but if you continue, it says, verse five, I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. It's such beautiful poetry, really, isn't it? It's compelling. David sustained another day. I'm reminded of Jesus's own words in the Sermon on the Mount, give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day, this cycle of sleeping and waking, hunger and satisfaction is a testimony of God's sustaining grace. Did you wake up this morning? Some of you, eh. (laughs) 
all right? If you woke up this morning, it is a testimony to you of God's sustaining grace. Go to bed tonight. Go to bed. Go to bed at a good hour. And wake in the morning. And the Lord sustains. Why such confidence? Why do we go to bed? Why does David in his distress, he might be killed at night by a son pursuing him. Why does he go to sleep? Because he knows Psalm 2.6. You don't even probably have to flip the page. You can go back to it. The Lord says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. That's why he can sleep. Because the Lord has said what is true. David is the Lord's king, not Absalom. So David goes to sleep. And he wakes. And he cries to the Lord his confidence. His confidence is in the word of the Lord. Now there's something really beautiful, again, in the poetry of this text for us. There is a lying down, a sleeping, and a waking. Is this also not true for our Lord? His death, his burial, and his resurrection. Listen, David laid down to sleep because he trusted in the Lord and his design, his covenant, his promise, his revelation. What does Jesus do? He climbs up on the cross and he lays down his life in in perfect submission to the will of the Father, Philippians 2. Obedient unto death. And he goes down to what the scripture often refers to as sleep. And on the third day, He rises according to the sustaining will of our covenant God. Jesus fulfills this psalm. He fills it up in ways David never could have. And yet, David did not even fully know that Jesus' fulfillment of this psalm is actually David's hope and salvation. He just trusted in the word of the Lord. If the king sits on the throne and blessing remains, it remains on the people according to God's design. He says, I will not be afraid. Many thousands of people who have set themselves against me. Why not afraid? Well, because the enemies are wrong. The Lord is salvation. David can prove it because he lived another day. He laid down, he slept, and he rose. He sustained and he continues in confident hope. The enemies, they make boasts, but David is resolute in hope. I will not be afraid of many because David fears one. He fears one. He fears the Lord. And it's the Lord who raises them up and casts down, the Lord who anoints and overthrows. Friends, in this portion of the psalm, we don't have a Selah, but if I could pause for a moment, the enemies mocked, right? And their mockery was, there's no salvation in God. Perhaps David should have built greater fortifications for himself in the fortress city. Perhaps if he would have built better fortifications and and done better political maneuvering, if you go back and read it, Absalom was a genius politician, all right? Maybe David should have worked on his political skills. He should have hedged his bets just in case God doesn't come through, right? No, David says, I have one shield. I have one shield. And that shield is about me, and that shield is the Lord. He's my glory and the lifter of my head. His cry is to the Lord, and his answer is from the Lord. And that is how he is able to sleep. There is a psalm, Psalm 127, verses 1 and 2, that fits so beautifully well 
here. I'd love to see a psalm mashup of these two, all right? Let's mix this together. We get a Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives his beloved sleep. He gives David sleep. He goes to sleep. If the Lord kills him in the night, well, that's how he always has lived, in hope in the Lord. According to what the Lord's design is, but the Lord doesn't kill him, he wakes. And he wakes according to his promise. David is the Lord's king. I think the greatest application of all of the Psalms, not just this Psalm, but all of the Psalms is faith. I mean, a call and an encouragement to faith. This Psalm can serve us, to call us, to take hold of the salvation of the Lord by faith, that he would be your shield, your glory, the lifter of your head, Do you see how the faith of David becomes a life of faith? It's not just a confession of faith. It's a faith that goes to sleep. Like, really? I I really, I mean this, and I'm trying to make a joke. Sleep is one of the greatest spiritual disciplines. To rest. Do you believe, like the farmer, who says, I labored all day. I did my part in faith. I did what the Lord has called me to do, but I don't make fields grow. I don't, take, I don't perform the miracle of the seed that, that springs up into a great harvest. I go to sleep, and I wake, and the crops grew. Sleep, go to sleep, rest after the day's labor, because it's the Lord, finally, who saves. The Lord who saves, in verse Seven, arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For a third time now, we see the orientation of David. His only hope is that the Lord would move. Strike all my enemies, he says. Listen, the Lord is just. Our hope of salvation is our hope in his righteousness. He is just. He will vindicate. He will strike the enemy. He will break the wicked. Selah. There is, I know in my week, and probably in yours, there is one moment of complete silence. Maybe some rustling of chairs in the background. And it takes place typically when James or Mark lead a silent prayer of confession. It's like the one Selah moment in which no one seems to need to talk. And there's no music. And there's no YouTube videos. There's no distraction. We say law there and we consider, I'm the wicked. I'm the rebel. And the Lord is the just one. He will vindicate. He will exercise his righteousness and establish his perfect kingdom with no rebels in it. And we're silent. And we sit there before that holy God. And we consider, is there salvation for me? Do you not see that as much as we're rooting for David, as much as we want David to take hold of victory and and hope for our circumstances and our own enemies, we are the ones who are actually the enemies of the Lord himself. By our nature, 
And by our practice, we can prove that we're rebels just by looking at our week like we do week after week. We've shown that we're sinners and rebels against the Lord. We are the wicked who ought to be brought low and who ought to be crushed. But the Lord, that very Lord, Jesus Christ, who is King Messiah, has taken the sin of all who trust in his good news, in his redemption, on his shoulders. Friends, it says, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. It was his cheek that was stricken. It was he who was broken in your place. The rebellion is put down. The kingdom, the righteous kingdom is established. And it's our sin that lays in a heap of ashes. This is the power of God's gospel in his psalm. Salvation, it turns out, doesn't belong to David. Mm -mm. It doesn't belong to you. Salvation, verse 8, belongs to the Lord's. It's his. It's his idea. It's his design. It's his king. And it's his redemptive work. He is our blessing. He is our shield and our glory. I would offer to you this morning that there are three implications that I would send you off with. More importantly, I send you off with a psalm. I send you off with Second Samuel to read through, to spend time with the Lord even yet this week in this psalm and its context. But I would offer to you three things to consider as you do so. The first, we've already asked, where do you turn when you face suffering? Not, not where should you turn. We know that. We've covered it. All right? The kids are in here. You can give the Sunday school answers, right? Where should you turn? Uh, Jesus, right? We know that. That's not the question. Where do you turn when you face suffering, when you face trouble, when you face enemies? Where do you turn? What is your demeanor when you face trial? I know you say, oh. What do you say after you say, oh? Who do you call? What does your prayer look like? Even those who do not believe in the Lord cry out a prayer, an aspiration, a hope, a desperation. My question is, where is your prayer directed? Second, do you rest in the Lord's sustaining grace? For those of you who know the Lord by his grace, he has encountered you with the truth of his gospel, that, his sin, that your sin really was laid on the Christ on the cross in your place. So there is therefore now no condemnation for you who are in Christ, right? If this is you, do you rest in that sustaining grace? Listen, David rested in God's sustaining grace. And yet there were things that he did. I would argue that resting in God's sustaining grace includes cries for help. He's not resting, he's crying. He's crying to the Lord. <laughs> it's not that I have rest. It's not my rest. It's the Lord's rest. And so who would I cry out to but the Lord? It includes mourning the loss. The mourning the loss of the palace, the city, the fleeing, the armies, the disaster and the Son. It includes trust in the Word, and it includes rest for your body. Go to sleep. Go to sleep. 
Third, do you see and believe that the Lord has arisen? Verse 7, arise, Lord, save me, O my God. Our cry for salvation is met by the suffering Savior. He suffered in our place, the casting down of rebellion and, and purchasing the righteous right for the forgiveness of sin because there's no condemnation that remains. It all went on the Christ. You see, my hope is sure. I have no negotiation within me that says, I wonder if I'm saved. I know I'm saved. God's just. And my sin has been paid for. It's finished. Do you know that Christ is risen? Do you know that your death has been died in him and your life is secure in him? You can know that. You can know his grace by faith. Cry out. It's interesting that in the account of Absalom's rebellion in 2 Samuel, if you look at what happens in sort of the, the, the falling resolution of this portion of the book, that David goes and he pardons his enemies. There's so many ways in which David prefigures the Lord. David was unrighteous to pardon rebels, probably wise, a good political maneuver. But friends, people died in light of those rebels. People lost so much. But in Jesus Christ, he died so that the pardon would come, yes, and it would be just. Do you see why heaven is not just a bunch of saved sinners enjoying a big eternal party? It saves sinners amazed that this good news is, oh, it's, it's good. It's thick. It's right. We will explore with our song and our lives in the kingdom forever the glories of our good king and his good news. Heavenly Father, this morning we have turned to your word. You tell us, this is my beloved son, listen to him. This means that in your word is the truth. And the inspiration of your very spirit is truth and nourishment for our souls, encouragement for our waywardness. Lord, I pray that we would know. We'd learn to sleep. We're not good sleepers, particularly in America. We're not good sleepers. We're not good resters. We're good players. We're good hobbyists, but we're not good resters. Lord, teach us to sleep in Christ. And rise with Christ. Lord, I pray that if there is one here who does not know that they are redeemed because they have not trusted in your redemption, I pray that they would lay down their fitting, their raging, their confusion, their unbelief, and your spirit would work so that that one as well could with a guttural confidence cry, your redemption is sure. Arise, O Lord, and save. Lord, this is our hope.
We pray that you would do it in our midst and you would be glorified. This is our final hope that we would praise our grace giver forever. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in the name of that king, that righteous and saving king. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.